I invite you to take your Bibles with me and open them to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18 this morning. The Gospel of Luke chapter 18, verse 18. Let's begin this morning by reading our passage of Scripture. Luke 18, verse 18. Luke writes and he reports and says, A ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the ruler said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, He said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the ruler heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said to him, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Would you pray with me? Lord, this moment right now is a very important moment. It is the time where we come to consider what Your Word says to us. It's a time where You apply Your Word to our hearts. It's a time where the truth resonates over us and in us and through us. It's a time where the lost can hear and be saved. It's a time where your children who are already saved can hear and be sanctified. Made more like you. It's a very important time. But Lord, we might be able to stand here and speak with all eloquence and all power and all vigor and and all energy and efforts. And we might be able to listen intently and and hang upon every word, and we might be able to intellectually ascend to these things in this passage and agree with them and respect them and and honor them, but the truth is if you do not affect the change in our hearts, it's all for naught. If a passage like this, Lord, only conforms us morally and doesn't touch our soul, we've missed it. And likewise, Lord, we can stand here and stutter and stammer and trip and misspeak and forget and rush and neglect and misquote. And we can listen with distraction and with only one ear instead of two. And yet, if you do affect the change in our hearts, if you do take this word and apply it, it's worth everything. I say this to say, Lord, this is not my doing, my time, our time. It's your time. Do a work that only you can do in our hearts. Let this text leap up off the page and affect us. Make your word living and active. After all, Jesus, we're here to meet with you. 
for no other reason than to meet with you. Would you save the lost who we know are here this morning? Would you save those who think they're saved but are really lost? Would you humble those who belong to you and drive them to greater adoration? Stir the affections of our heart for you, Jesus. That we would see you are the greater treasure to forsake everything else for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are coming back to Luke 18, verse 18 this morning, having been there last week and not finishing the text, which uh, is a bittersweet for me. I wanted to finish it last week, but I so enjoyed this passage that I don't mind coming back to it again. Last week, we began to address the question from this text, what prevents a person from entering the kingdom of God? If you look back into verse 15, 16 and 17, we looked at the requirements of entering the kingdom of God. Jesus in verse 16 and 17 talks about those who belong to the kingdom of God. In verse 17, he says those who won't receive the kingdom of God uh, to teach us that it's childlike dependence that gets a person into eternity with Jesus. Right. It's not our works, not our morals, not our, our, our perceived goodness or seeming uh, seemingly good natures. It's childlike dependence and acknowledgement on Jesus alone. That's faith. That's trust. That's coming to Christ saying, I can't do anything. You have to do everything and I'm clinging to you and you alone. That's the requirement to get into heaven. Connected to that text is verses 18 through 30 where we're spending our time. Which answers the question, what prevents a person from being childlike before Jesus? What keeps you out of heaven? In verse 18, we encountered this nameless individual in verse 18, Luke only gives us his title. He's a ruler. But there's many things we've learned about him from verses 18 through 22 and, and 23 where we were at, at last week. We've learned that he's a misguided individual, mistaken in his religious understandings. We've learned that he treasures his wealth and possessions more than anything else in his entire life. Ultimately, even more than Jesus. We've learned that he's an actually pretty good religious individual. He's what, what, what we might call a good churchman. Faithful in attendance and knows his Bible and tries to live his life according to what he knows about his religion. If you look in verse 21, he, he says to Jesus, I've kept all these things from my youth. I've, I've informed my life and lived my life by these things I know of God. I'm doing my absolute best. I'm making my decisions based on my religion. I'm making uh, my career choices based on my religion. I'm living my life, trying to live my life by the motives of God's law. Jesus even acknowledges in verse 20 that he knows the commandments. You, you know what the Bible says. He's a religious individual. He's wealthy. Verse 23, Luke informs us he's extremely rich. Though we don't have his name, we do know his title. The word that Luke uses there references religious leader or religious ruler, most likely one who's a part of the Sanhedrin, which we've come to know is the governing body of Israel, both uh, in this time, both of their religious matters and their civil matters. Most likely this guy is a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe or someone, someone of that nature who has a, a pretty high standing in their political and religious system, and he knows what it means to have power and influence. He knows what it means to have popularity and likability and, and be looked up to. We also know this individual respects Jesus immensely. In verse 18, he is a religious leader, but he's coming to Jesus asking a spiritual question. There's at least some small sense of humility or submission there. I want to know what Jesus has to say about eternity. But more than that, he calls Jesus good teacher, which Jesus capitalizes on in verse 19. Not that Jesus is denying that title, but he's saying, you know what you're saying, that, that only God is good. And that's how you're calling. That's how you're addressing me. That's what you're calling me. It's doubtful this man 
In fact, I would say it's not possible that this man perceived Jesus to be the Son of God, but he probably at least conceded to the fact that he's sent from God. And so he gives this elevated response, this, this elevated perspective of Jesus. You are the good teacher sent from God, and I want to know what you have to say about eternity. All that to come to say that, that we talked about last week, Here's a religious man who's got money, got his possessions, has power, has influence, is trying to live his life by his religious standards. He even respects Jesus, wants to agree with Jesus, seeks justification from Jesus, commendation from Jesus. He's by all standards a good churchman and not saved. And you know how frightening that is for many people that would classify themselves as good church men and good church women. The truth of the matter is lots and lots and lots of people are the rich ruler here. They know the Bible. They know their religious traditions. They even try to orient their lives around them. They respect Jesus. They, they even agree and honor some of the things that He says. They're great in the business world. They, they've built up an awesome retirement nest egg. And yet they are not saved. They don't know Jesus. What a frightening thought that somebody can be so close to the cusp of eternity. What a frightening thought that somebody can sit and practice their God-given religion like this Jewish individual, and at the end of the day, know nothing about God. What a frightening thought that people today can sit under the preaching of the gospel week after week after week. They can listen to the podcasts of their favorite preachers. They can read their Bible devotionals that they get every week and, and every month, and they can subscribe to the religious magazines and at the end of the day, not know Jesus. I don't think that's far-fetched. And don't think that's not likely. This individual fits that mold. And there will be people in our own church that fit that mold. Ultimately, Jesus comes down to verse 22. He says, one thing you still lack, you, you've done these things since you were young. Verse 21, since you were 13, that's the typical age when a young man was required to keep the law. Verse 20, Jesus has routed off these five moral laws. You've done all these things. He comes to verse 22 and he responds and says, directly addressing this guy's assumption, and says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come and, come and follow me. What's, what's Jesus saying there? We talked about that last week. He's not adding some work for this man to be saved because no works save us. There's nothing good within us. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. So Jesus isn't giving this guy some work to do. He's not adding some extra stipulation on to, to the requirements that He didn't add to any other disciple. What He's saying is, you think you've kept the law, but let me come down to the, the basic tenets of the law. Have you loved God and loved your neighbor? Because if you love your neighbor, then you're going to use the wealth that you've been given for good and glorious purposes. You're going to minister to those who, who need help. You're going to invest in, in ways for people to, to hear and know about God and be saved. Have you used your wealth in that kind of a fashion? Then he says, come and follow me. Do you love God enough to give up that wealth and come after me? Essentially, again, do you love God and love your neighbor? Jesus has said in Matthew and Mark and Luke, all three of those synoptic Gospels, several different times, those are the two great commandments. Loving God and, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That summarizes the entire law of God. Have you, have you done that, young ruler? Well, the painful reality comes to verse 23. No, he has not. He didn't love God. He didn't love his neighbor. 
which means he didn't know Jesus and he doesn't gain life in Jesus. And ultimately, as we come to verse 23, he doesn't treasure Jesus above everything. That's what Christianity comes down to. Do you love God more than anything else? And are you loved by God? It's not about keeping these rules and putting on outward masks to, to cover up your poor behavior. It's not about looking good in front of other Christians. It's not about being at church all the time and, and posing yourself as the greatest, most powerful, most glorious Christian since Christ. It's not what faith in Jesus is about. It's about treasuring Christ above all things, including your own life. So we concluded last week, you can be as religious or as spiritual as you want to be. But if you do not love and treasure Jesus to the point of giving up everything for him, then you are not saved. Perhaps a stark contrast to how some others might present the gospel. The one thing this man lacked in verse 22 was the main thing that was Important to God. A supreme love for God above all other things. And that's the exact same call that's extended to you and I. Love God above all else. And it's not relaxed even in the slightest, is it? In verses 9 through 14, it wasn't relaxed for the Pharisees. In verses 15 through 17, it wasn't relaxed for the disciples. In verse 18 through 30, it's not relaxed for this wealthy, powerful ruler. And in 2018, it's not relaxed for you and I. The high standard of belonging to Christ and entering into heaven. Jesus is your treasure and your love. <clears throat> well, we come now to verse 23 this morning. And we've highlighted there are four things going to be revealed in this text. The first one was the requirements being revealed. That you have to love God above all things. The second one this morning is the difficulty of that is being revealed. Difficulty is being revealed. That's a tall order. A high standard. And we concluded with last week the ultimate truth. You can't meet it. Right. Salvation is difficult. Indeed, Jesus will say it's impossible. If you come into verse 23, what we learn is that our idols have a very firm grip on us. Our idols enslave our hearts. Our idols hold captive our thoughts. Our idols are where we dump our money. Our idols are what we give our time to. And most often to the detriment of our eternal soul. Look in verse 23. This man Here's Jesus' instruction in verse 22. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and then come follow me. And verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And you need to see the sequence of events in verse 23. He is extremely sad because he's extremely rich. And because he's extremely rich, he's extremely sad. It's his wealth that has such a grip on his heart that he responds to Jesus' instructions on inheriting eternal life with much sorrow. Luke uses this emphasizing word there in verse 23. Very sad. Oh man, that's, that's a drag, Jesus. Or, ah, uh, that's kind of hard to do. Give up everything and follow you. After all, you get mocked and spit at and chased out of your own hometown. What do I want? All my money or no place to lay my head? That's not the kind of sorrow we're talking about here. We're talking about deep internal anguish. Because this man realizes the choice that Jesus has just put before him. Wealth. Or eternal life. And the man chooses wealth. And Matthew and Mark's account of this 
um, encounter, they actually say he walks away sad. Not just that he got sad, as, as Luke kind of just quickly reports, but he leaves Jesus sad because he wants to cling to his wealth. Is he sad because he has to cling to his wealth? No. Is he, is he sad because he's going to cling to his wealth? No, it's sad because he's going to cling to his wealth to the detriment of eternity. Our idols have a firm grip on us. And many people, church, are unwilling to make that trade, aren't they? They're unwilling to give up their treasure for a greater treasure. They're unwilling to make that exchange. Ultimately, church, we can plug any idol into that statement and find it to be true. Not just wealth. As is common with the Gospels and especially common when God's talking about money. We don't want to limit it to just that. We can start plugging in other things. What prevents people from heaven? What keeps them from following Jesus? It's their unwillingness to give up a whole host of things. Wealth and possessions and materials, most certainly. It's also things like drugs. It's also things like alcohol. Though those are minor in comparison to the other subtle things that occupy the attention of our hearts. Things like relationships. How many people I know right now in this moment unwilling to leave their girlfriend or their boyfriend. Although that individual yanks them away from Christ. It might be something as good and God-given as a sex, sexual relationship within marriage. It might be grades. It might be power or popularity or music or movies or, or family or get this likability. I'm not willing to give up my likability to follow Jesus. I want people to like me. I want to have good friends and lots of friends and I want to be in the middle of the social scene. And if I follow Jesus... As he's saying in this text, I'm going to be weird. I'm going to lose friends. I'm not going to be invited to parties anymore. My coworkers won't include me in their birthday lunch. Whatever it may be. As I've come to consider this text and consider what keeps most people away from following Christ, I think I've identified something in our particular context that I'm almost definitive on. Because there are a lot of people who respond to, to Jesus the same way this ruler does. There are lots and lots and lots of people who sit under the preaching of the gospel. It's not for lack of the gospel being proclaimed in our context that they don't respond to Christ. So what is it? And I think for us, in our particular context, time, society, all these things, it's reputation. And I'm almost 100% on that. There are tons of church people. Well-meaning church people. Who are afraid to respond to Christ like this. Because they've been in church all their lives and they're afraid of what the rest of the church might think of them. They have a false faith. And they have no assurance of that faith. And they're convicted deep inside about it. But I'm scared of what people might think or say. Scared of what my family might think. Individuals running through my mind right now that's given me that exact excuse. If I follow Jesus, my, my family won't be very happy. Scared of what my friends might think. I'll have to give up my friends. I'll have to give up hanging out with them. I think it comes down to reputation. What keeps people from flocking down in response to Jesus when Christ so clearly says this is what it means to inherit eternal life and, and eternal life is, is what's at stake for you. What, what keeps people from saying then I'll give it all up. I want Jesus. And I think it's because they're afraid to lay their sin bare before Christ. I think it's because they're afraid to confess that they're not perfect. They don't have it all together. That they are addicted to pornography. That they do drink too much. That they do indulge in drugs. That they are greedy. 
They're afraid to admit it. They're afraid to be made low so that they might be brought high in Jesus. Our reputation cripples us. It was wealth for this guy, but I think for us it's reputation. What people think of me is what's keeping me away from Jesus. My apathy, my fear. Church, again, we can plug just about anything into this statement, into this principle that Christ is teaching and find it to be true. The difficulty is great. It is real and it is serious. And many of you are sitting here today being prevented from Christ because of something as silly as wealth. You and I read this text and we say, we look at this ruler and we say, what an idiot. I mean, I mean, what a moron, really. He's ignorant. He's foolish. He's got it all backwards. And we see it as plain as day. He can have these worldly treasures stacked up in his house that are going to decay and moth and rust are going to destroy. And he's going to die. And we've said this before. His kids are going to call it junk and try to sell it and deal with it at a, at a garage sale and can't get rid of it. So they throw it away. And he's clinging to it like it's his entire life. And he has here the greatest treasure humanity could ever have in possessing salvation in Jesus Christ. And he goes for the junk? We look at him and we say, dude. But the reality is we make the same choice when we choose our reputation. Utter foolishness. We make the same choice when we choose our likability our popularity, our networking, our grades. Man, what a heavy word, Pastor. Quit, quit talking about it. Let's move on in the text, right? We don't want to think about these things, but if this passage doesn't grip your heart, you've missed it. And you're wasting your time being here. Get a better hobby. Verse 24, Jesus highlights the difficulty of, of what he's saying here. Notice how Luke transitions into verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, responds in this way. His response of verse 24 is directed at the ruler's response. So I'm going to say this because you are sad. I'm going to say this because you won't give up your wealth and follow me. And then he says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it is for those who care more about their reputation than eternal life. How difficult it is for them to enter the kingdom of God. That's a sobering statement from Christ Himself, the Savior. It's a rhetorical question. It's really not even posed in a question. Most translations use the grammar to make it a statement, and, and it is. And the word how is just tacked on at the beginning to stress the significance of what Jesus is saying. How difficult is it? It's eternally difficult. This statement in verse 24, it's both a declaration and a warning. A declaration in the sense that it is an absolute fact. A universal reality. You might be tempted to come to this and say, well, Jesus is really giving it to that guy. How difficult it is for him to enter the kingdom of God. No, that's a universal statement. How difficult it is, period, for people to enter the kingdom of God. Many people think they have control of their idols and they rename them as hobbies. But it's likely your hobbies have control of you. As Jesus is saying. It's not just a declaration, though it's a warning. And by nature and connection, it should be. If it is a universal, ultimate reality, then by connection, it's a warning to us. Here's the warning. How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Be ridding yourself of your idols. Let me tell you, there is no luxury in this life worth forsaking heaven. There is no luxury of this life Worth giving up Jesus. 
Understand what I say there. Your internet, if it's keeping you from Christ, is a luxury. Get rid of it. Your cable, your cell phone, your social media. Let's be radical. Your money. None of that is worth Jesus. The warning is to let nothing prevent you from God. Not a sin, not good things in this life like your spouse, your children. What a, your grandchildren, such great blessings from God, but never meant to keep you away from God. The simple question always comes down to what value is Jesus to you? You want to assess your own life? How valuable is Jesus? The difficulties expressed so aptly in this encounter. We look at this ruler and we say he gets to see Jesus. He hears his voice. He's in his presence. He could reach out and shake his hand if he wants. He sees Jesus. He gets the, the perfect answer to his question. Jesus didn't say, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, I'm not really sure. It's kind of iffy. It changes from time to time. Now, Jesus gives the perfect answer. This ruler is right on the cusp of getting it right. I mean, he's right there. He's on the borderline of heaven. The property marker. He has the path to eternity laid clearly and concretely in front of him. And he walks away. You want to know how difficult it is? This guy's a prime example. This very difficulty that we see in the text, it's not only great, but it has consumed many hearts through the ages and it will consume many, many more. Hell is full of people who succumb to the difficulty. Verse 25, Jesus shares this hyperbole, which is this exaggeration. I'm going to call it a metaphor. Verse 25, Five, I mean, excuse me, he says, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The exaggeration is highly intentional. No camel that I know can fit through the eye of a needle. Now, there have been attempts made to explain away what Jesus is saying here, and I do want to address that for a moment. There's been attempts to redefine what the camel represents and what the eye of a needle represents to, to somehow say, you know, God's loving and merciful. Surely heaven isn't that difficult. He wants people to be saved and that is true. So heaven isn't that hard to enter into. Several years ago, I heard a gentleman preaching saying, well, the camel's a camel and the eye of a needle is actually this gate in the city wall and, and an individual can walk through that gate, but a camel can't. And so to get through the gate with the camel, you have to take the luggage off the camel, get the camel to get down on its knees and crawl through the, the eye of a needle. So it's possible, it's just really difficult. And you have to put forth some effort. That is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying what he says. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And notice the word easier. I'm a word guy. Highlight that in your mind. It's easier for that to happen. The metaphor is meant to communicate the difficulty. It is hard. It is hopeless. Verse 27. It's impossible. It's an impossible analogy. Why is it impossible? How many people do you know are willing to forsake everything for a treasure that is the greatest treasure but they don't get its reward until later? Not many. That's because of sin. Sin has so corrupted our value system. We chase after money and fail to realize what we give up in its pursuit. Well, as you imagine, Jesus has just shared the difficulty. So we come to verse 26. 
these guys have just heard the whole camel needle thing. And in verse 26, desperation is revealed. Those who heard it, there are people surrounding Jesus and they respond in a certain way. In other words, Jesus' tactic works. What He's trying to communicate, obviously, of course, is going to work. He brings them to this place of utter hopelessness. And that's so characteristic of Jesus, isn't it? You may know the Gospels. You may know the life of Christ. You may not. But let me just tell you, Jesus always and often brings people to a place of desperation. Which tells me if you're not in that place now in life, you probably don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Because He still brings people to a place of desperation. Why? Because what God wants is for you to love Him and depend upon, depend upon Him like a child. Verse 15, 16, and 17. And children are desperate. We are desperate. In verse 26, the words that the rich man heard were offensive to him, but for these guys, they revealed their, their deficit before Christ and they ask a better question. Question of desperation. Then who can be saved? Notice the word then. Because they're not saying, all right, that guy didn't get in, so which one of us is going to get in? Let's make it an auction, Jesus. I'll bid higher. I'll bid higher. I'll do more. That's not what they're saying. They're looking at this ruler and they're saying, if that guy walks away sad, what hope is there for me? Who can get in? Who can be saved? They would have likely interpreted this man's wealth as a blessing from God because of his righteousness. They would have, they would have believed verse 21 and agreed with him that he's kept the law since he was a young man. And they would have listened with complete eagerness as this man, this leader, this ruler that they look up to asked Jesus this question. And by the end of verse 25, they're left in complete shock and horror at Jesus' response. Their hearts would have been beating with excitement. Their blood would have been flowing. Their ears would have been attentive. They would have had smiles on their face. And then Jesus answers the ruler and the wind has been sucked out of their lungs. The wind has been taken out of their sails. All their forward momentum has ceased. Why? Because Jesus says it is hard. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's difficult. You have to give up everything. They totally, totally get the metaphor of verse 25. And they totally see the impossibility of inheriting eternal life. And in an instant, they realize there's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can offer. And there's nothing they can accomplish. I can't bring the wealth of this ruler. I can't keep the law like that ruler did. I'm not popular enough. Why would God want me on His team? Verse 26, you can sense the exacerbation of their statement. Then who can get to heaven? What hope is there? James Edwards, who I've quoted earlier on this passage, says this, I'll quote him again. He says, The ruler was confident that he could do something to please God, and he went away sad. These people, in verse 26, are confident they can do nothing to please God. And God does within them what they cannot do. Look at verse 27. Jesus responds to their desperate plea who can be saved Jesus says what is impossible with man is possible with God praise God because these guys are right I can't love God enough I can't give up everything and cling to Christ tightly enough I can't keep the law I can't do this I can't do that I have nothing to accomplish. Their cry is very similar to the cry of the tax collector in verse 13. 
When contrary to the Pharisee, he stands far away, won't lift his eyes up to heaven, beat his breast, and all he can say is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. These guys are brought to the same place. I have nothing to offer. Jesus even highlights in verse 27, don't, don't miss it in skimming over. Jesus says, it is impossible with man. You can't do anything. You bring nothing to the table. You can't pray enough. You can't be sad enough. You can't repent enough. You can't give enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't read your Bible enough. There's nothing you can do to contribute to your salvation. Are you desperate yet? Because eternity is at stake. Is your stomach in knots yet? We are desperate creatures. And we have not an ounce of good within us. Even our good acts are tainted with selfish pride. And selfish ambition. And eternity lies in front of us. Eternal life or eternal death. Are you desperate yet, church? great, glorious gospel news of verse 27 is that all things are possible with God. And the impossible redemption of humanity has been secured in Christ. So what is impossible with man has been made possible with Jesus. And the redemption that we so desperately need is freely offered. In Christ. The answer is trust in God. Finite man cannot do a thing to save himself. But God is not finite. And God is not a man. He is God. And if you trust in Him and His work alone. You have life. In fact, Jesus brings us to this place in this passage where that's our only option, right? Our only option is to cling to Jesus as tightly as we can with complete faith and trust. That like a child. And the promise stands. If you do so, you will be saved. That's why I like Acts 2, Joel 2 so much. Because in Acts 2, Peter's quoting Joel 2. And at the end of that, he says, We live in this new age when everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise that I cling to tightly. Everyone who comes to Jesus will find salvation in Jesus if they're not like this ruler, if they're willing to give up everything and cling to Him alone. We're not advocating here you have to sell all your possessions to be saved. We're saying that has to be the set inclination of your heart. Jesus, You're more to me than anything else. Because none of us in here have sold everything. But several of us are willing To hold on to Jesus more than anything else. He's our only hope. So we strive day after day to forsake our idols. To give up our goals. To submit our careers to Him. We've been driven to this desperate place. The frightening part is the ruler wasn't desperate enough for heaven. Or else he would have given up his wealth. And many people aren't desperate enough for heaven either. But it's in our desperation that God does the work of our salvation. When we're brought to this place of hopelessness, we cry out knowing Jesus is our only solution. That's the place where God works salvation. That's the place where we die and find life. That's the place where we are nailed to our own cross and born again. To be desperate means to understand things like sin and hell and heaven and eternity and God. And to not just understand them with your brain, but to understand them with your heart. To understand God is real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. Sin has condemned me before a holy God and worthy of eternal torment and punishment. But heaven is also real. And Christ came to save 
And to be desperate means to realize that and to run to Him and Him alone. That's the last thing revealed. Verse 28, this promise, this treasure. I'll, I'll speed up. I've lost track of time. Verse 28, Peter, as the spokesman for the apostles, speaks up as is his characteristic. And he says, see, Jesus, we have left our homes and followed you. We, we're clinging to you. We're placing our faith in you. You're our only hope. We're holding tight. We trust in you. And Jesus responds with this beautiful statement. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. In other words, Jesus says it's worth it. He's not saying it's an easy life. In fact, in that Philippians 3 passage we read earlier in the service, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things. It's not easy to let stuff go. It's not easy to wage war against your heart every day. Nobody's advocating that. If somebody's advocating it's easy to follow Christ, then they're not following Christ. Jesus isn't saying that. But He is saying it's worth it. Here's the promise. It's worth it. And the promise is you'll have more even in this life. What does He mean by that? Is it like Job where we lose everything and then He gives us ten times more at the end of our lives? No, that's not what He's saying. He's saying it's worth it in joy, assurance, peace, satisfaction, approval. How many of you chase, spend your lives chasing satisfaction at all costs? Chasing for some sort of pleasure. Some sort of delight. Some sort of joy. Some sort of antidote to numb the pain of this existence. Maybe I'll find it in relationships or money or cars or, or video games or grades or friends or whatever else. Jesus is saying, give all that up. Come to me. I'll satisfy all those needs. You might die a martyr's death. You might lose everything. You'll have more wealth on the inside than you can imagine. And then he says, and you'll, you'll also get it in the life to come. I'll just forever lavish good things on you. I, I find it so Christ-like that this passage um, is laid out the way that it is because the question of eternal life is asked in verse 18. It's not answered to the very last verse. Verse 30. The text is book-ended with the subject of eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do what Peter and the other apostles did and what Jesus responds with. We've given up everything for you. And Jesus says, then you have eternal life. What an easy trade, right? To make in our minds and our hearts, I hope. Not easy to execute. But easy to realize. It's a no-brainer. Give up the vain temporary things right now and gain everything in the life to come? You betcha. Many aren't willing to pay this cost, and that's no surprise to us, right? Many will not enter heaven because they won't love God more than their stuff or more than themselves. And that's what's required. Treasuring your idol above Jesus will always keep you out of heaven. And what gets you in is Jesus alone and Him being your supreme value. A worthy supreme value. Oh church, I would caution you, do not let this be just a mere intellectual understanding. Nor let this passage create just a mere respectful acknowledgement of truth, but let it consume your hearts. And drive you to Jesus. If you come to Christ in desperate humility, that's where you'll find life. If you look in verse 14, Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Who cares what people think of you? Who cares about your reputation? Who cares about your bank account? You might have more money than me and in the end it's not going to matter. Who cares if Christ is at stake? Humble yourself before Christ and you will be exalted into eternity. That same gentleman, I'll end with this quote, James Edwards. 
summarized this text like this. He says, Eternal life in the age to come is the one treasure in life that is worth the cost, whatever it takes. Once procured, this treasure renders all costs irrelevant. The blessed hope of eternity is the one instance in which the end truly justifies the means. Amen. The truth of the matter is, there are some of you here this morning, it is no secret to me, that you are here and you are an unbeliever. You might have even thought you were a believer and have come to realize I'm nothing more than a religious individual, nothing more than this ruler, and I really don't love Jesus more than myself. I'm not saved. Let me just tell you, today is the day of salvation. Christ extends a merciful arm to any who will come to Him today. And if you want to be saved, you come see me today. I'll tell you how to be saved. There are others of us here who are born again by God's grace. And we know it because we have complete assurance. We have the Spirit of God bearing witness to our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8. This text ought to spur us on to adore Christ more and more and to fight harder and harder against the things that compete for His supremacy in our lives. Let us wage the warfare first with repentance and then with vigor. Those are the two applications of this text. Don't be the rich ruler. Walk away sad and unwilling. Be Peter and the apostles who say we've given up everything and we're trusting you and to which Jesus says you have eternal life. Lord, a text like this is immensely important. And as I said earlier, no eloquence of speech can push it into a person's heart. Though I labor... Though I beg, though I plead and implore, though I work, though I go over time, I cannot save a single individual. I can't even save myself. I'm as desperate as the rich ruler. I'm as desperate as the crowd who heard you. But Lord, in my feeble efforts, if you have decided to work, well then, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And people can be saved. And hearts can be further conformed to your likeness. And we can be a people who increasingly wage the good warfare of laying down the things of this life and treasuring you. Jesus, let the lost come this morning unashamed and be saved. And let your children humbly repent and find strength in you. All because you have worked in our hearts. Oh Lord, your word, it doesn't come back void. It's not sent out in vain. It has touched at least some person's heart this morning. I pray you would use it to touch all our hearts. For your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray.